This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Well, here for a large dose of stuff on a Thursday, folks. Boy, got a lot of things to get to on the program. First of all, introductions. Ramya Muthan, hello. Okay, maybe not. Are you muted? We do this yes, thing, I folks. Uh, how I was just going to explain <laughs> to everybody. We do this thing with mute that we suddenly start to talk and, hey, what's going on here? Uh, welcome. <sighs> Thank you. Uh, nice to be here. Yeah, it's um, a busy day on the show. Uh, I've got a lot of things here lined up in honor of my Kelly and Company team uh, with the um, news items I want to bring up in a few moments. Uh, mm. You've taken a quick glance at them, and I'm sure they shouted at you, Matt, and Jeff. Totally. Just Kelly yep. Co. Team, right? Kelly Co. Team. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Folks, when Kelly's picking the clips. That's all oh, I can say. Well, and and these are what some would say. Well, that's not really Kelly kind of clips. Oh, but once in a while I get on that theme. I'll give you a hint, folks. Usually I try to get on that theme on Tuesdays just before our veterinarian comes on the air. But I couldn't resist saving a few things in which to discuss. So we'll get to those. But first, let's take a look at what's coming up on today's edition of Kelly and Company. Gardener Susan Kearney discusses how come we should consider replacing our existing lawn grasses with native sedge grasses. Interesting. We'll have another grass conversation, Rum. Yes, such a great theme for the week. Okay, we're also talking about Vision Loss Rehab Canada and iNuck Inc. They've partnered up and announced the launch of VLRC's Eye Health Screening Initiative to screen rural, remote, and Indigenous populations in northern and eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathy, and we're learning more about it later. Man, is that ever huge. Anxious to see where they go with this and what comes. We'll talk about to them uh, about that. Also on Curious Minds today, we continue our conversation with Christine Malik on a website called Sensing the Dynamic Universe, aiming to make astronomy more accessible. That chat will be an hour two right here on Kelly and Company. Okay, yeah, 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 you guessed it, folks. If I was uh, dedicating some items, and when I say dedicating, keeping my teammates in mind, you know they have to do with the world of animals in some fashion. Environmentalists say the rush to build wind farms to combat climate change is threatening golden eagles in the western United States. When the birds collide with wind turbines, the result is usually deadly, says Charles Preston with Teton Raptor Center. They don't necessarily perceive this distance, this gap between the, uh, the turbine blades. And so as they're flying through uh, and the turbine is spinning, it strikes the eagle. Doug Bell is with East Bay Regional Park District. As far as potential solutions goes, um, you know, there probably really is no silver bullet, but there are several options that can be pursued. One, he says, is building turbines in areas less frequented by the eagles, something conservationists like Preston agree with. I'm Julie Walker. So we talk always about climate on the program and uh, with that urging and what we need to start doing, Rum. And we've heard recently, yeah, we need more of these wind farms. Look what they're doing in Quebec and things like that. 
And here we go, a downside to them. And, 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 and I don't want to say an obvious one, kind of a, oh, oh my goodness, uh, one for most of us. And we might say, yeah, that's happening out there, but Quebec's not reporting that. But you know what? No matter what, there's going to be somewhere, wherever you have them, that kind of hazard. It's, it's weighing it out. But again, it just makes us think of, okay, doesn't mean don't do something. It means how do we get around it? Yeah, exactly. Because you know that there's going to be more and more challenges like this. Sorry to hear about the Eagles, um, where you think you're doing something really beneficial for climate change, making that difference. Woohoo. But it's not necessarily um, a fix all solution. So something's going to some you have to keep tweaking like it's part of the process. Uh, when we went to paper straws, um, we were like, great, paper straws are awesome. But, you know, there are complaints about why paper straws are not all um, ideal, right? Or or beneficial always for everything. Um, and, and then the whole, yeah, and everyone, and the conversation around recycling or even disability. Uh, so then we move on to metal straws, reusable straws, et cetera, et cetera. So this is one of these things where you think, oh, great, we'll never be able to, you know, appease. But you, you can't, you know, kill off the whole population of eagles because uh, we decided this is the only solution. That's not true at all. Yeah, especially when you know it's a big enough problem. And in this modern day, there's got to be that way that we can find something. I mean, whether it's a noise they don't like that keeps them out of the area, all sorts of things. And I understand there is going to be, we can't save all. We have all these buildings with windows that birds are constantly crashing into and we've been told we need to do something about that. We need to see the importance of this. And and more and more cities and towns that have the skyscrapers like that are. Now, I want to move on to what I consider fantastic dog story. And since these guys all have dogs, let's let's talk about a particular dog missing for two months was found alive inside a Missouri cave. Take a listen. Jeff Bonert had all but given up on seeing his poodle hound mix again after she went missing in early June. Two months later, he got a text from a neighbor. People exploring a nearby cave had found a dog. Like, oh my goodness, that's Abby. How could how could this even be? It's been two months. How can she be still alive at this point? Rescuers believe the nearly 14-year-old dog lived mostly off her own body fat while spending nearly 60 days inside the cave nearly 500 feet in before her rescue on August 6th. She walked to the truck with me and I put her in the, picked her up and put her in. And that's when I realized uh, how much weight she had lost because she was feather light. Abby is now regaining weight and is wagging her tail again. I'm Lisa Dwyer. So great for Abby, but is that a reason to keep a little extra weight just in case your dog wanders <sighs> off from? I mean, our veterinarians what? would say, no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> don't let your dog wander off like that. And I know the nature of certain people's, you know, farms or wherever it might be like that. So I think that's something to think about. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, also want to talk about kind of weird phone calls one can get. Uh, when California 911 operators tracked a call to a zoo, it opened a whole wild kingdom of possibilities of, of who or what was on the line. The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office posting the tale on social media, and it's bananas. On Saturday night, their office getting a 911 call that disconnected. No response when the dispatcher called and texted back. The call coming from a zoo in Paso Robles. An investigation leading to the caller. A very clever Capuchin monkey named Root who started monkeying around with a cell phone in the zoo's golf cart and just happened to push the right set of buttons. 
The sheriff's office seemed understanding, posting, you can't really blame her after all. Monkey see, monkey do. Dave Packer, ABC News. Now, do you always wonder, and we had one last week where you, you just get a chance to use all the puns you want to use, and there used all the puns. And I absolutely... Actually, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, and I, these guys, with all the hard news they've got to report, they must absolutely relish a moment to, to do something like this. What a smart monkey, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> knowing... Yeah, and Sorry. knowing exactly which numbers to press, too, not just, like, fooling around with the buttons. I like his monkey see, monkey <laughs> do, and knowing, hey, and I think that just tells you how much time we spend on the phone. And mm. for puppies that, well, I can't even say puppy, 14-year-old dog, by the way, in our last story, you oh. talk about a durable animal that far back in those caves and managing to live. Wow. Really cool story, in my opinion, but... Oh, I know. Anyway, Michael Fair highlights the second standalone story in Graphic Audio's Arkham Horror Story series, excuse me, called The Last Ritual in two minutes on Kelly and Company. Remember, if you want to ask some questions about Accessible Media Inc., you're just thinking about something, I, I want to know that. Email feedback at ami.ca and the gang over there in communications and marketing, they can help you out. Feedback at ami.ca. Just ask your question and somebody will get back to you. Maybe you got something you want to know about AMI-audio. Go on Twitter, at AMI-audio, and just ask the question. You can also follow along, see what's happening with the different shows uh, when we're on the air, segment to segment, or just what's coming up on your favorite AMI Audio Show on Twitter, the handle at AMI Audio. Also, maybe you have a recommendation for our audio book of the month? Yeah, we got to talk a little bit about that. We'll do that later in the show. Got a little announcement for you. But give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Recommend your book, maybe. 1-866-509-4545 is the number to do that. Mention it's for Kelly and Company. And if you don't mind, please let us know if we can use whatever message you leave for us on the air. Well, otherwise, we certainly won't do that. Kelly McDonald here at the Home Studio of London, Ontario. Ramya Muthan at the Home Studio in Toronto. And we love Thursdays during the summer because it means we get an audio entertainment feature recommendation from our friend Michael Fair. Let's bring him on. Hi, I'm Mike Fair. iPhones, iPods, and iPads are everywhere, and they're doing great things for the blind. We explore all that, plus audio entertainment, dramas, podcasts, internet radio, and games. We share it all on Kelly and Company. You know, summer just wouldn't be complete without a slight uh, a slice of Lovecraft. Well, at least Lovecraft inspired audio horror, Mike. So you're here to tell us about this week, the second standalone story in Graphic Audio's Arkham horror series called The Last Ritual. Already sounds like horror for sure. Uh, what's the Arkham horror series based on? Well, initially, I just thought it was a series of, of uh, novels directly inspired by H.B. Lovecraft right. uh, in his initial work. But there's an intermediate step uh, of, in the form of a game uh, called Arkham Horror. It, there's a board and a card game that uh, pits sort of a group of, of players as investigators 
against forces that are threatening to doom the town and the world, right? So they're, they're trying to, to put out all these, these troublesome supernatural portals and things. And uh, that, that, uh, those, I don't think either of these games have been made accessible. I wish I were wrong about that, but uh, cause they sound fantastic, but that's apparently uh, from fantasy flight games. That's what the story is, is tied into that Arkham horror sort of world of, of more pulpy, kind of uh end of of the spectrum of arkham horror uh kind of things they're kind of pulp adventures written hmm. in the modern day do you feel at a disadvantage mike i mean not only that you haven't been able to play the game especially now you've looked into this and and kind of oh wow it'd be great to play the game but do you feel that as someone who couldn't play the game does it in your mind whether it's fact or not take away from your knowledge enjoyment whatever you might want to uh Point that to a w- enjoyment of of the of the content. Yeah, I kind of feel like I, I'm denied full access to the universe, right? I mean, the story right. is great. Yes, There's, good you way know, to put You're it. not missing anything out with the story, mm-hmm. uh, but the, it would be fun to play that the game. It sounds it's certainly one of the ones I would enjoy. So yeah, wow, yeah, that's you, you feel that. It's like getting to look through a window, you know, and, and that a kind of equivalent, right? Because that's really what it is. It's based on like an adventure that could have potentially happened in the game. So, yeah, it's, it's like us being able through the novel to, to sort of peer in and, and sort of vicariously enjoy the fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what's the story about, Mike? So Alden Oaks is an artist. And uh, he's young, independently wealthy, son of uh, rich people in Arkham. He's traveling. He's in Europe. He sees this strange festival. And in that festival, there are strange symbols that uh, reoccur in the story. And also uh, one of his uh, his idols as an aspiring artist, uh, Juan Hugo Balthazar, is briefly grim- glimpsed at this festival. And he he's kind of it's a hazy thing. It was a really powerful thing to see. He's kind of stumbles away. He's, he's sort of on the beach, uh, you know, a little time later and he bumps into this friend, uh, Pres- Preston Fairmont, who's a wealthy friend. Uh, they were college buddies and they sort of went their separate ways and, uh, they've had a long history together. And he, uh, Preston is, uh, engaged now to, uh, 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 Minnie, Minnie um, uh, who formerly was uh, in love with our, our lead uh, character. So <laughs> there's some tension there, but he said, you know, he's great. You know, if that's what happened, you know, they broke up and, and he'd be happy to come to the weddings and, and be, you know, getting back to Arkham. So he's encouraged to do that. Uh, Nina Tarrington is another woman who was in love with uh, Preston and is now uh, falling in love with Alden. So going in the reverse direction as the story progresses. And it's it kind of these two women are kind of linchpins of the story as supernatural elements kind of uh, come into play. Uh, you have uh, a, an art colony with a, Juan Hugo Valvasar, this artist, is ending up coming to Arkham and... Uh, it's all tied into with this strange uh, these parties he throws where things get really strange and supernatural and stuff starts to happen that is is very hard to to explain, including a bunch of murders. So there, it, it's all kind of all these threads are, are woven into this tapestry of increasing dread as the story progresses. And what issues are explored in the drama? 
Well, there's there's quite a bit there. There's uh, friendship, of course, the bonds of friendship, loyalty, uh, you know, the power of art to inspire people. Certainly, that is is uh, touched upon uh, in, throughout the book. If, if you hear Juan Hugo Balthazar and uh, why he inspires, and uh, uh, as as he starts to build this cult in this colony uh, in Arkham, so that is an increasing thing. Uh, love and friendship are really deeply important. Like, how much do you owe a former lover, right? When, when, you know, it, it, your life could be put on the line to help, right? I mean, how far does that uh, go? And loyalty to friends. I mean, what better examination of that than if a friend experiences something supernatural? I mean, the, do you believe it, right? I mean, you you know this friend, but is that enough to convince you of something that seems just utterly impossible? Right? So there's that. There's the loyalty of friendship. There's the moral decay of the 20s, of the you know, prohibition and everything uh, going on. So you have that that air of you know the wealth comes from you know unclean sources and what happens is this as people accept you know, are willing to bargain for what they want, are willing to let things slide, right? And you have that creeping sense of decay. <laughs> I bet you almost get that feeling. Everybody is involved with it it's like or has uh, uh, rubs up against that illegal activity um what about your pacing mike what what's the, it like for the story this is a slow burn as as traditional lovecraft horror tends to be uh it's it's a slow exploration through uh the lives of these characters as they the supernatural increases around them slowly it's 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 investigation leading to horrific discoveries leading to undermining of foundations like what you once believed about your place about your town about your life turns out to be this this tenuous thing this this you know the reality you knew isn't quite what it what it ought to be and you you kind of it's a coming of age and really in a lot of ways uh, alden oaks is coming of age and and you sort of see that but you know as as in circumstances pile that on so it's, mm-hmm. it's a slow pace kind of thing mm-hmm pretty interesting way to approach the genre how adult is the story i would say it's 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 written for adults 18 and up is what the graphic audio site uh, proclaims and i would say that's about right you know maybe maybe 15 16 year olds uh you know, could probably follow it certainly not for young kids this deals with adult themes there is some cursing there's some violence it's 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 not heavy violence um throughout the story but there it's there the threat of it hangs over everything so yeah it deals with a lot of kind of adult life uh, problems and, and themes so what makes um arkham such a good setting for these stories well the the depression or sorry, not the, the uh, prohibition is on and that kind of uh that is is all through the town you know people just accept you know they, they disobey the law they want their liquor and if you have yes. enough money you can get it that that means crime is ignored. People look the other way when crap happens, and uh, you know there's unexplained murders. People have been murdered, and and, and there's been no satisfactory uh, solutions. And uh, you know they've just been written off. And uh, you know why is this happening? Why hasn't anyone solved it? Uh, you know what's happening there. So there's this sense that people are almost a town like this, a town that's, and in fact, uh, Balthazar said at one point in the story that this is a city built on bones, you know, built on bones of people, you know, who've been exploited. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's like no one who lives there is entirely 
free from this creeping sense of of guilt and yeah. open of to involvement, what's to them. right? Yeah, yeah. By even just by being there, kind of that that sort of thing. Guilt by association. You have a sense of that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Were you happy with the way that the story ended, Mike? It surprised me. <laughs> I was very, I was very surprised, I'm, and that that delighted me in a way. I I had two competing ideas as the story progressed for how it was going to end, and neither was correct. And I was like, "Wow, you know, that almost never happens." You know, <laughs> just it, I it was it, that completely surprised me. So you, there is a nice twist at the end that I did not expect. What do you think uh, of so sound? That, what do you think of sound and music, Mike? I, I I'm betting I'm betting for some nice sound. Yes, the sound work is is nice. The music was was very cinematic, and I I thought worked quite well and was was present uh, to a fair degree. But sound took center stage. You really heard, you know, the environments. They do a great job of of putting the actors where they ought to be. I never had a sense. That, oh, that voice sounds wrong for that environment, right? It was mixed very well. You heard the environments envelop you. The stereo effects were were very well done. And it's it's not a blockbuster. You don't have like the super special effects, right? It's all kind of, you know, there, kind of, you know, creeping in the background. And, you know, it's subtle, very effective stuff. Mm. And the acting? Yes, the acting was very, very nice. Uh, uh, Ken Jackson did a lot. He produced as well as acted. Uh, he played Alden. He narrated the basically the, the story. Uh, he was great. Alyssa, Ke- Alyssa Keegan uh, was uh, Nina, and I thought she did a, a really well job of, of Nina Tarnington, this investigative tough person who uh, propels Alden into this investigation of these adventures. And uh, Anthony Palmini really stole the show as Juan Hugo Balthazar. I hope we hear more from him. He did a wonderful rendition of of just to, he clearly enjoyed his role as as this this inspirational figure, this kind of power-driven cult person. It was, it was just really <laughs> well done. A joy to hear him. He, he just clearly had fun with it. Was the story worth the time and money, Mike? I would say yes. You know, it was, it was eight hours, uh, and uh, you know, we heard it over two sessions, so two evenings of entertainment, basically. Uh, served us really well in that regard. We were never bored. Uh, so I would say, yeah, you're getting your money's worth. It's a good rendition. I'm looking forward to more. I decided on the second story because I figured it would give them a chance to find their feet, and I I haven't heard the first one yet. But I, you know, they might uh, that might be worth digging up too. Uh, but I'm hoping they they pursue this because I think Graphic Audio does Lovecraft quite well. So looking forward to more from them in the, in this uh, genre. Very cool, Mike. Well, we get a variety of these um, features and reviews from your end on Thursdays, so always looking forward to it. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. Lots more coming. Okay. We're counting on it. Uh, You can find The Last Ritual and many other offerings at Graphic Audio, and this is another one to check out if you're into the HP Lovecraft uh, inspired audio dramas. And Mike Fair will be back next Thursday with another audio entertainment feat. You talk about folks who have been creating content like this for so long, graphic audio. So when it comes to it, it they know the biz, that's for sure. Coming Mm -hmm. up next, as we uh, stop for a couple of moments here, pause. But we'll be right back on Kelly and Company with our gardener, Susan Kearney, who today is going to discuss why we should think about replacing our existing lawn grasses with native sedge grasses and wildflowers. We'll hear her reasons in a moment. 
Welcome back to the program. Appreciate it. It's Kelly and Company, Rumbia Booth and Kelly McDonald, hosts of the show. Wherever you're listening in around the world, we appreciate your time hanging out with us on the show. And uh, remember, we're here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. The repeat of the show at 5 p.m. Eastern, and just in case you can't be with us for the live show, always glad to have you on board. And on the weekends, check out the best of Kelly and Company. Hey, maybe you're so busy through the week you don't get a chance, but on Saturday and Sundays you can join us for the best of Kelly and Company. Susan Kearney joins us. She's our gardener, and of course she's here to talk all things gardening on Kelly and Company. Hello, I'm Susan Kearney. Join me on Kelly and Company to learn about the joy of gardening by using touch, taste, scent, and sound. Earlier in the week, we had a bit of a chat um, about grass, about different types of grass, Sue's on the program. Really Mm -hmm. interesting kind of conversation. So very timely that we're going to continue a little bit of that with you today. Mm -hmm. So let's let's get into a chat about our lawns. you want to talk about doing some replacing of our lawns with uh, native sedge grasses and wildflowers. What, what, why, why this? Well, I found this very interesting. Um, I, I think that um, I originally heard that in um, some states, I think one is Minnesota, um, they are actually helping uh, homeowners or um, areas uh, replant uh, native grasses and wildflowers and sedges um, instead of instead of lawns. Well, there's a reason for this, and I I, I think a lot of other communities should start looking at it. First, all the um, the water that is used mm-hmm. uh, on our on our our lawn grass, and I think we're really seriously and very quickly are going to have to. Um, Think this through, because water is becoming very, it's probably going to be one of the short um, uh, uh, things in, on our planet um, all over. And I, I think saving it a little bit um, with, without putting it onto lawn grass. And, and I know people like their, you know, their lawns. Um, you know, they're, they're nice to walk on, and I, I gather they look really, really nice. But they do take a tremendous amount of water. That water just goes off that grass and into um, our like uh, into our, our sewer systems, or just just runs away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything. Yeah. It, we, and, we had and, this interesting it, chat, Ramya, didn't we, with 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 Young earlier in the week about grasses. We've also been mm-hmm. seeing on the news uh, so much about what's happening in the United States with how low the yeah. water's got in the Colorado River, yeah. for example. Yes, absolutely, and I and and I, and I think this is going to be with us for for a very long time. And I think we're going to have to change the way we we, we think about the way we think about things in in our our, our gardens, our lawns, and so on. And I'm I, I know I'm I, I'm trying to rethink um, some areas of my garden. Um, I, I did it um, in in the one wooded area, so I did put trees and I put some. Um, some uh, grasses and so on. So it and it, within mulch. So there's very little long grass there. There is some. I'm hoping that I can find somebody who can help me design a maybe a bit of a border around it, so that I take out all that all that other grass. And because I'm, you know, I sort of like to do what I talk talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is the one area where. Um, I, I think everyone would sort of look at it 
you grow something very um, short so it and, and durable, so it can be walked on, it can you know be used. But um, I, I think there are a lot of a lot of plants we sort we haven't looked at that mm-hmm. can probably mm-hmm. take the place. So mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, Sue, and I'll let Rum jump in here whenever she wants. I just want to throw this at you. Um, Mm-hmm. Again, like yourself, you know, I'm vision impaired enough that okay, that's nice, a lawn. And I do remember the days when I think I could see enough to to sort of to see a bit a di- the difference between brown grass and green grass. I, I think yeah. I kind of maybe I just told myself that <laughs> maybe it wasn't so. So if people trim their lawn, you keep your grass as short. But we're talking about the mass amount of water. And again, yeah. I used to just think people just turned the water on and, oh, we've got sprinklers. I can wander away. And, and we used up water that yeah. way, necessarily not really thinking because they'd say, oh, I just need one good rain and the grass will change practically, suck it right up and be better. Now, obviously, I understand. No, no, it doesn't. It's not so easy, not so simple, not so little yeah. rain. It constantly needs it. But I, I, I find it interesting because of the goals that people have to make these lawns nice, keep the grass short. Um, but as you're saying, it's a lot of water that we either yeah. intentionally waste on it or in overall, uh, you know, it beads off or, or whatever. Very fascinating as we talk about people wanting that nice lawn and people go by and to suit the neighborhood. Um, mm-hmm. we, we have that. So w- when we change this, and I think this is where a lot of us, do you think a lot of us just don't really realize how much or what we're doing when we are, as you say, we should be conserving water and are pushed to the point by a town or city saying, you know what, anyone with an even number, you're the um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and off number mm-hmm. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays, or something like that. Uh, do we really realize the amount of water or are we really truly just wasting water? Well, I I, I think it is... Um I'm, I'm hoping people are, are beginning to um, think think about it, think where where the water comes from, where the water goes, um, what they're using water on. And I, I, I think the word water is going to, it, it, it is definitely going to be forefront um, in, in a lot of conversations. Uh, we need it for a lot of other things. And uh, my, my next point, and it, it has something to do with water, but before I put in my next point, I will say that I support um, the independent farmers around the world because what I'm going to talk about is fertilizer. And um, I I know this has been also controversial and how much fertilizer we put on our lawns, although it has been um, put back to a lot of our farmers. But when you're putting all that fertilizer on the lawn, it's running into what? Uh, our water, our sewers, uh, our absolutely. Water. So Anything. there we go again. Mm-hmm. So when we do that, and and, and a lot of these um, sedges and uh, and 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 grasses, the native grasses, they don't need that fertilizer. They actually will um, break down and make a lot of their own fertilizer. So what they do, they're very good at doing that. They're very good at, at growing in uh, you know dry drier conditions. Uh, harder conditions, um, not so much, and we'll get back to fertilizer, and then we'll go to soil. So when you put down a lawn, uh, when you have sod, and you're putting that down, you need very good soil. 
So where that soil is coming from someplace where maybe we should be growing food, um, that's, that's, another, that's another point in communities instead of having um, have, have a, a food garden uh, where people can come and, and have a patch and, and grow their own food. It's, it's just different ideas. It's thinking differently about um, how, we, uh, how we have our properties. Uh, any any kind of pro- property, how we uh, actually um, use that that's what we call green space, um, because it is important to have green space. It, the more green space we have, the um, the better our planet is going to be. But it, I I don't think we should put it all to grass. We should um, we should start thinking differently about our green spaces altogether, right? And this is interesting mm-hmm. because I, I mean, the most I've done independently is balcony gardening, but even that, um, you know, it's so, uh, these conversations are so helpful, Susan, because when you go out looking for your plants, you know, are you shopping yeah. organic? What do fertilizers even mean? Because you can find all the generic information you want anywhere, right? Like yeah, how to absolutely. grow tomatoes and <laughs> you just find yeah, out what yeah, it needs, absolutely. what fertilizers to use and what uh, it needs more of and less of, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, how much research are we doing into how these, uh, this growing of of greenery and plants um, plays a role overall in the bigger picture in Canada, (laughs) in our own backyards, in our neighbors' backyards, in the wildlife. Like earlier, we talked um, about the the eagles and the windmills. So everything is obviously a a big cycle and chain reactions are huge, even like if we just don't see them. And just because it's been happening for years, like that's the thing. This yeah. is so normalized, right? Having the turf lawn um, and encouraged. Yeah. And then the the yeah. other side of it is discouraged, the, the native species and, um, you know, de-weeding and all of this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. but like we've done it for so long that you, I don't blame people who are questioning and saying, why? Why should I change all this? It's been yeah. working all this time. Everybody around me does yeah. it. Um, but, you know, it should make us curious at the least. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to at least, you know, at least look into it and, and see, you know, what you can do. And, I, and then when, when we talk about the fertilizers and you said de-weeding, usually years ago, um, they used to, people used to come around and, and, and they did. And could we, um, you know, can we spray your, your lawn for, for weeds? I, I never allowed them to go, go by. Right. Um, if my neighbors did it, I got it anyway. It doesn't matter. didn't pay for of it, course. but it came. It came. It came somehow, either through water or wind or whatever, or you know, and and mm. and, and you were out sitting on that. That that's chemicals, and and I think a lot of people. It took a long time for people to start to change that. That did start to change uh, during the eighties right. and the nineties. People were saying, um, you know, it's causing all sorts of really bad, really bad things, and yeah. and then people started to listen. Oh, okay, well, maybe spraying. Spraying the lawn is such a good idea, and then going and sitting on it and having a picnic. What are you sitting in? Mm. You're sitting in those, you know, those those chemicals. So, and yeah. and people did. So people are willing to change things when they, you know, when they keep hearing it over and over again, and when they know that um, they can be part of of the change and change for for the better, for you know, for for good, for more good. And also when you look at how much fuel is being used for mow, for mowing lawns i mean it's uh right <laughs> they and 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 that 
goes into our, um, and I know there are electric lawnmowers too, and then there's those lovely push lawnmowers, um, but there, a lot of people are still using the fuel lawnmowers. And, you know, I think they're gasoline powered, but that, that too, that is another thing that may, may have yeah. to change. Think, think about like, and, and they would have to think about that. Um, that's, that's another fuel thing. Um, so you go and get an electric car and you have a fuel gas, you know, like a gas lawnmower. Maybe not, yeah. but it, it could be. So yeah, those are just. Um, and, yeah. and I, I find it interesting that some communities are already beginning to talk about it and, and, and help homeowners. So I'm hoping that it comes here soon. Um, I'm a big advocate of that kind of thing and, and help people and change a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it's big yeah. news in Ontario that, uh, you know, the government basically is uh, saying, hey, let's take part in this initiative because we always talk about everything on the micro and macro level, right? Like the things we can do at home on our own. But then when you walk into Mm -hmm. the store, when you look at what the government supports, um, is that really in line with what you're trying to do, the the push that needs to happen? Um, So Mm -hmm. that's that's great to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's nice to see the support. It's nice to see that people are willing to start doing a little thinking. And I know it's hard sometimes when you talk about stuff with LawnsNet, but if you put them in the terms that you've put them in for us, Susan, it really stops and makes you think. And as we were talking off the top, okay, yeah, it's great to do the things, but let's figure out what the repercussion, not somebody walk, you know, walking by saying, ew, they've got really short grass there. You know, the real right. repercussion is, okay, what, mm-hmm. you know, what, what does it affect and what are the yeah. absolute benefits? Thanks, Suze. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Bye. Tune in for our gardening chats here on Kelly & Company with Susan every second Friday, uh, Thursday on Kelly & Company. Up next, folks, Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada and Inuk Inc., announced the launch of VLC, VLRC's uh, health, eye health screening initiative. This is going to screen rural, remote, and indigenous populations in northern and eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathy. This is fantastic. We learn more about it in two minutes in our conversation. Welcome back to the program. Absolutely love being here every day, folks, to chat with you and uh, share so many so many great subjects from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern for the live show, as, as mentioned a little while ago. However, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop to think, you know what? You might be a little busy, may not be able to catch the live show or the repeat of the show. So check out the Kelly and Company podcast. Simply subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. You can listen to the show because along our feed, we put the show in segment form. You can listen to the show in the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience where we toss an audio vanity card on it. Take a listen to that at the end of the podcast experience. But otherwise, pick out your favorite contributor or the topic that maybe you came in the middle of when listening to the live show and said, oh, gosh, I want to hear that again. Subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast. Check out our podcast feed. And if you would, while you're in there, maybe give us a rating and review. I'm Kelly McDonald, host of the program with my co-host, Ramya Muthan. 
And we're talking about some very exciting uh, initiatives right now, Kels. Rehabilitation, or sorry, Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada and INUC Inc. announced the launch of VLRC's Eye Health Screening Initiative. And this is to screen rural remote and Indigenous populations in Northern and Eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathy. We know how much of a huge deal this is when we're talking expanding uh, access to healthcare, access to exams and access to just just everything medical and knowing things earlier and being able to um, provide that opportunity for more people around Canada. So we're very excited about this. Let's talk to INUX President Frank Chang and a Vice President of Healthcare Innovations, Josie McGee. Uh, both of you, welcome to Kelly and Company, and thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Appreciate your time. So, Josie, let's start with uh, INUC um, and how it all started. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Um, I think that was a great question. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. So, uh, this is Frank sure. Chen with INUC. So, um, INUC is a U.S. medical technology company developing AI solutions to diagnose diseases through the human eye. So, our company was founded 12 years ago near Los Angeles under the name INUC, which spells E-Y-E and U-K. The company is on a mission now to screen every eye in the world to ensure timely diagnosis of vision-threatening diseases. That includes, of, of course, uh, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, and age-related macular degeneration. These are all, you know, kind of a leading causes of blindness around the world. Fantastic. Currently, our technology for diabetic retinopathy detection is approved in Canada by Health Canada, in the U.S. by the FDA, and in many countries around the world as well. Uh, this is a disease uh, caused by diabetes, which is one of the leading causes of blindness around the world, as I mentioned. And the technology uh, provides fully automated uh, screening for people with diabetes, with diagnostic results available in less than 30 seconds on the spot, without requiring any eye care professional on site. Wow. Okay, Frank, thank you. That's great. Um, Josie? You and I yeah. are teaming up to screen rural, remote, and indigenous populations in northern and eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathies. Why is that? Well, considering that it is the leading cause of blindness in Canada for under the age of 75, and it is costing the healthcare system $1.2 billion annually, we were trying to focus on where that impact is going to have the most reach. Uh, individuals living in those remote and isolated areas and indigenous communities, uh, they're the ones that are at, that are at high risk for diabetes uh, and diabetic retinopathy because they have lack of appropriate resources close to home. Right. Um, so what we wanted to do was address this problem by making diabetic retinopathy screening easily accessible, even in the most remote locations, with a care closer to home approach. Uh, utilizing a trust, trusted community providers. We know that with early detection, timely treatment, and appropriate follow-up care, that risk of vision loss can be reduced by 95%, which is wow. huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really huge. Mm-hmm. It makes such a big difference, right? Absolutely. So um, can we keep talking, Frank, about the, the involvement? Um, because it's really important that the partnership, the collaboration itself, uh, to get all grounds covered. So how did the partnership with VLRC come together? That's interesting. So exactly two years ago this week, 
Actually, it was uh, actually, uh, yeah. So uh, August 19th, 2020, Josie reached out to us. Wow. She noticed news that FDA granted clearance for our technology in the U.S. market, which our technology is still the only technology in the U.S. approved by the FDA for autonomous detection of vision-threatening level of the diabetic retinopathy disease. So Josie reached out. Our two organizations quickly realized that we had shared common vision and actually complementary capabilities to help prevent blindness for millions of Canadians. So we then followed VRC's lead to initially focus on Ontario and specifically in the rural and the indigenous communities. So I'm really thankful that Josie reached out, uh, you know, two years ago and turned out that this partnership was really, uh, you know, kind of productive. VRC has turned out to be an excellent partner for us to introduce our technology into Canada. This is beautiful. And so many people benefit when you talk about preventable numbers being up 95% with the intervention we're talking. Josie, can you talk to us a bit about how this will all be done? Sounds like AI will be a little involved. All right, heavily. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, we we sort of looked at what the, the issues were. And there were three big issues that sort of came uh, out of, you know, sort of our research. And one was the fact that... Um, you know, people often had to travel to get this uh, this screen done. So we kind of implemented using portable fundus cameras that went out to the communities and actually a train the trainer approach so that our partnering organizations could actually do the screening themselves. So we have partners like community paramedicine, uh, our indigenous community partners, primary care, hospitals, uh, diabetes education programs, where clients are already going to those places uh, and then they can get that service. So with those cameras, you know, they upload um, the picture, they take a picture of the eye, they upload that into uh, the software and the software is able to produce a report in 30 to 60 seconds, which identifies whether there is diabetic retinopathy or not. Uh, in the current practice or before we started this, um, this initiative, once that picture was taken by the camera, that image had to be sent to an ophthalmologist and every image had to be reviewed. So now, now that we have the software that can do that piece, only positive screens are being uh, sent to ophthalmology, which then helps with cost effectiveness and right. helping ophthalmologists, yeah, focus on, you know, sort of other uh, uh, capacity and, and things that they need to do. Um, so once that happens, if the client requires follow-up care, then Vision Loss Rehab provides all of that coordination, which was also another barrier that we found that there wasn't always the resources to do that. Um, so between all of that, uh, we're hoping to, you know, make this more accessible, make it more efficient, and again, bringing that care closer to home approach. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we've had, a, I've had my fair share of um testing and just uh, all kinds of imaging, eye imaging done over the last several years. So uh, it, it definitely makes me um, curious to hear about all this. This is fantastic stuff. And Frank, how many screaming, screenings are you looking to do? Like how widely spread are you are hoping this um, initiative goes? Sure, sure. So the need obviously in Canada for diabetic eye screening is enormous. Right? Every people, everybody in Canada who has diabetes, which you know that number is five million people, mm -hmm. needs to be screened. You know, needs to be screened every year for you know their potential diabetic eye condition. Right, so that's a lot of people to be screened. Uh, so we have a big task ahead of us. But the good news is the AI technology is capable of processing hundreds of thousands of images 
you know, on a, within a matter of days. So we're fully capable and fully ready to screen every eye among, uh, you know, Canadians who have diabetes. Josie, with you guys moving into Northern Ontario, Eastern Ontario to, to handle this, and we're looking and saying, okay, these remote locations are being serviced. So I, I'm going to ask this, but it sounds like as, as, as cameras and, and the software goes out there, um, there are the means of people being able to be seen and the pictures be taken. But if somebody listening to this says, hey, I'm in a remote location, how can they get a hold of you to get one of these screenings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they can uh, go to our website at visionlossrehab.ca. Uh, it's under our specialized programs. Um, all my information is in there. And then we can certainly connect and see if uh, wherever they're located, if we have one of our partners uh, that are doing those screens. Um, so that is definitely one way. And one thing I wanted to mention in terms of, you know, sort of the feedback that we've already been getting from clients, we've had individuals who've not been able to, uh, you know, see a healthcare professional and 15 years, you know, and as Frank said, like those uh, screens, if you have diabetes, you should be doing them yearly. Um, And so it's been amazing the impact that we've already seen uh, from individuals who've been able to access, you know, care now and, you know, be identified that they actually have diabetic retinopathy. It's been life changing for some of these individuals. Yeah. It, it, of course, would have been, and like you guys have both been pointing out, this is a really uh, necessary and super helpful tool and initiative because of the number, right? Like just the amount of people mm-hmm. who um, are waiting for the information or may not even be aware that this is what's happening to them. Um, so just overall, the awareness is incredible. Where can we go to get more information? Yeah, so as I said, uh, our website, visionlossrehab.ca. Uh, it's under our specialized program. Uh, so there's some more information there about the di- or our eye screening initiative, uh, as well as uh, my contact information is on there. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to field any questions or, um, you know, provide any support that comes through. And also for Fantastic. those who are interested in our underlying AI technology, they can visit our website at uyenuk.com, which is inuk.com. Nice. Very nice. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you both so much for coming on, uh, sharing this information with us and giving us your time. Appreciate it. All the best. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Take care. We were speaking with INUX President Frank Cheng, as well as Vice President of Healthcare Innovations of the VLRC, Josie McGee, uh, talking about the screening initiative for rural, remote, and Indigenous populations in Northern and Eastern Ontario for diabetic retinopathy. Coming up in the next hour of Kelly and Company, Curious Minds, hosted by Christine Malik. Our roundtable guest for this week is Jillian Gillis. Our AMI TV reporter in Halifax. But up next, Bill Shackleton. He's standing by with the buzz. There's nothing like the wonderful smell in the air right before a rainstorm. This is Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. Welcome back. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDowell, host of the program as we begin Hour 2 of Kelly and Company. 
Thanks for being with us. Of course, always appreciate your time on a Thursday and lots still ahead on the program. Let's bring this guy in and see what he's got to talk about as we do Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. This fella, Bill Shackleton, who's been standing by in the wings. Bill brings a few items to us. We never know really where he's going to go, what he's going to talk about, what he wants to bring up. So, without further ado, surprise us, Shaq. What do you got? Drum roll. Here we go. One from yesterday, ding, 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 which I think is kind of interesting. Amazon Ring MGM launches show from viral um, doorbells. So this is kind of interesting. Um, as you know, Amazon has bought MGM and they they are launching a show. Um, which is going to start in September. It's going to be a half an hour show, I believe, once a week, comprised of of viral doorbells oh, videos that's cool. from door. I think it is. Um, it's going to be. You might think it's kind of silly, but it's it's going to be. Um, you know, these ring ringers or whatever they're called have you know picked up certain videos and people doing stunts. There's going to be wedding um, proposals. There's going to be animals doing certain things, weird things, cats, dogs, whatever. Um, it's also a branding opportunity um, for Amazon because, as you know, they've come under fire uh, recently for using certain videos without uh, the owner's consent. Now, these videos were... Um, emergency Amazon deemed to them to be an emergency, so they were passed on to law enforcement, um, you know, officials. Right. So you you got to think that if you were, if it if you uh, whatever they were attacking or somebody hurting somebody, you you don't they don't what shouldn't need your consent. It goes right to the police or wherever they went. So this is an opportunity to sort of. Um, sort of clear the error and, and you know, I, I guess show the diversity of what of, of, that, that everything that they do isn't all that serious. I, I guess it's just a marketing thing. Really? I, I yeah. wonder, are they, like, if, I mean, I don't know how you make a full show or anything like that or, or how long these can be on, on doorbells, but let's be fair. There's all kinds, all sorts of types. Um, and, and, you know, Billy, if you really looked at it and, and went back into the history of doorbells and things like that, that could actually be really fun. I'm anxious to hear what this thing looks like. I mean, I, as, as you were talking, I got thinking about the times, and I remember we, we were lived in an apartment in Montreal, my family, and we had the doorbell. And I started thinking, gee, most people don't have doorbells in apartments now, if at all. They, they don't. And back in the days, even further than that, when you actually had a buzzer, more yeah. than a doorbell, but just even the sound of them before they were so, I mean, they've always electronic or to some degree, but there were those times where, you know, people would pull that and you just got the, the brrrring, like a, not a school bell quite thing, but that's how they worked before they were hooked up electrically. And I think, oh, wow, be kind of cool. Yeah, sort of, but not, not, so, not as loud. And then, of course, as it kind of sat there on the wall. Not the that front- these days fire alarms. But the fire alarm was yeah. when we were in school. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or the school bell itself, right? The darn, oh, yeah. a, you know, um, yeah. but so many of these things, like the gas station bells, when cars went over them, bing, bing, like that, th- yeah. they all had to be manually via the car going over it and causing the bell to be rang or your finger on the buzzer. 
um, making it do that, you know, making it um, chime or, or whatever you want to say, um, bu- buzz. It's so different because nowadays anything's electronic. And you remember you, the big old mansions where people would have like um, chimes that would ring in the real old in the movies. You'd hear these ding, 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 whatever it might be. But I think if they're doing that, hist- that's fascinating. I know you'd like that, Bill. Yeah, um, and and for those people who are wondering, you they will ask your permission to use the video and most of these videos. And that's this is another interesting aspect of it. If you really want to know what's up there, they're on social media. I would think so. So I guess if you put and, and if you type in doorbell rings and ringers on YouTube, you'll get a lot of them. So you'll get some idea of you know what the show is going to be about. Might did be you, um Did you have a, a, a favorite sound that you looked for that you have not heard in years that you've gone to social media to find, Billy? Not, not, not that I recall. No particular vehicle item thing. I mean, I used to, um, as a kid, I remember, and my goodness, it's hard to believe that this was one of my favorite things, uh, a cigarette machine. The old cigarette machines, I used to find the sound of them absolutely fascinating, certain ones. And I remember going on YouTube and looking. Rum, did you ever have anything like that, that whether you heard about it or wondered or just remember as a kid that you don't hear anymore? I have no clue. Like, I can't think of anything. As a kid, like only when you were talking about the, the school bells, I was like remembering that school bells had a sound, you know, that kind of stuff. But nothing where... Uh, you know, I nostalgically think about that sound or the other. But when we had that conversation about um, like rural Newfoundland or, you know, some town um, getting rid of their, the, the um, uh, was it a lighthouse or a horn oh, of some sort? Anyways, yeah, yeah, the fog horns, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and how people would feel because they just grew up with it and it's it been part of their lives forever, right? Oh, I remember that story. And, the ice and, cream truck? Yeah. I don't know. I, um, Billy, remember, <laughs> remember Bill, yeah. when for the longest time you never heard the old-fashioned phone ring? And then uh, I think it was the iPhones started bringing back the actual yeah. sound of the old phones that rang like that in the 60s and 70s and so on and and that has become a noise people are used to now would would never even say well what do you mean that's an an old phone ring it's just a ringing phone but for for one of those things that has never died away because of it being brought back interesting that should be should be interesting to doorbells bill next might be next thing from doorbells to trash cans what takes years and costs twenty thousand dollars a San Francisco trash can. So this is, a, I mean, since 2018, San Francisco has been on the search for the perfect trash can. So there's been a number of people that have that, that have basically thrown their hats into the ring. Um, the old garbage cans, um, apparently the hinges break and the locks break. And because they have huge openings, people have been putting clothes, shoes, and they've been overflowing them. So the garbage has basically gone into the street. And so they have to have people go out and clean clean all the stuff up. So they decided to make there's, – there's two types of cans that this article talked about. The one is called the soft square um cost twenty thousand dollars. Wow. 
That's a lot for a garbage can, Oof. isn't it? Yikes. You'd be real yeah. careful what you put in it. I know. Well, actually, it's designed to have to fit bottles and cans. So it doesn't have a huge opening. It just has it's it's specifically for and it has a foot pedal. Um and I and I guess that's it's specifically for small items. Um the next one that the it was was um slim silhouette, which cost eighteen thousand dollars. And it it's it's it has bars across so you can't put graffiti on it. I mean, are these cans is, is, are they really have to be that expensive? Really? That's that's crazy. The expensive part I can't comment on, but I can understand the the actual issues that they're having. I don't know about the graffiti. Oh, I, I know. If you're, if I you're know. Gonna, yeah. Yeah, if you're going to graffiti anything and everything, then that's just out of my control at this can't point. You spray but through the bars? um like I don't know, man. But you know, if people are rummaging and setting fires to their their cans and yeah. uh, the the holes are too big and it's just becoming overfilled, those are actual problems, right? Because that yeah, they, I guess they are. They mentioned yeah, and as but they for mentioned, twenty grand, then the garbage means... can could walk away. No. If you started to harass it, it could just never mind. Dude. You're not setting me. It could be anti-fire. Five of those garbage can cost one of our APS systems wow. in Toronto. That's insane. Um, but anyways, I, I don't know if it has to be this costly, but it does seem like an actual problem. They're saying that sometimes trash is strewn all over the sidewalk that you can't yeah. even walk. Yep. I yeah. mean, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Toronto has yeah. nice garbage cans. I like the, um, yeah, I like the, the different receptacles for like, you know, garbage recycling and then there's a different uh, recycling types. They don't have a foot pedal though. Or at least but, I've never but, but most enough. places have these problems though, and that's... I yeah. kind of think that's interesting because most places they get blown over, people kick them over, things happen, animals yeah. get into them. And you don't want to deal with yeah. the flaps, but the yeah. holes no. present a different problem altogether. Um, well, the city, hmm. they have they have this developed an interactive map, and they're so serious about these cans. They want you as a pedestrian to try them out, and then the winner is going to be selected at some point and uh I, I i guess that's what the they're going to use yeah. whatever it is kind of like get yourself these um you know these expensive neighborhood kind of expensive garbage cans kind of get a theme going of garbage cans among the city that it's it's interesting uh and some of the ideas like hey when you really think about some of the necessary things that people want to do when it comes to their own little garbage can and the safety that people could suggest so they can avoid whatever problems they have in their neighborhood, wind blowing it over or somebody abusing it or animals. Uh, it, it would be interesting to sit at the table with some of those ideas, but let's be fair. I'm sure those ideas are at manufacturers all the time. I'm sure they are. I think so. Jack, thanks a lot, pal. Okay, we don't get to talk about WHO renaming monkeypox, right? Uh, and you probably won't. Well, maybe you can talk about it tomorrow, but I'll leave that for another day for another producer to tell you yes or no. Oh. Uh-huh. Bill Shackleton comes on with a variety of subjects on the program. We just heard what he offered up today. We call it the buzz. He'll be back tomorrow for the Friday edition. In just a moment, folks, we're going to continue our conversation about a website called Sensing the Dynamic Universe when Christine Mallet joins us in just a moment for Curious Minds on Kelly and Company.
Listen to AMI-audio right from your TV, folks. Source custom, source cable channel uh, 110. You guys can find us over there. And T-Baytel uh, IPTV. Look for us on channel 1112, please. Visit AMI.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Kelly McDonald here with Rumya Muthan. And we're getting into Curious Minds as we do every month with Christine Malik. What did, whatever happened to when you? Was, what does that mean? How does that work? Oh, I didn't know that. I never knew. I'm Christine Malik, and this is Curious Minds, a monthly dive into arts and culture from a blindness perspective. So, Chris, it's exciting because we get a little bit of a part two. We're continuing this conversation about a website um, called Sensing the Dynamic Universe, and it's making astronomy more accessible for people uh, with lower no vision or a lot of other people, I guess. Tell us more. Yeah. So, you know, there's never been a better time to be a kid, if you ask me, and to be blind (laughs) and considering a career in STEM because there's so much going on. If this stuff had been around when I was a kid... I'd be an astrophysicist. Right? <laughs> so last month we heard from... <laughs> First blind lady on the moon. <sighs> Don't get me started. <laughs> um, so last month we heard part one of a conversation I had with Paul Green and Afra Ashraf from the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. And their website is about variables. And these are objects in the sky that change. Uh, in appearance, though possibly not in form or distance. So it's complex stuff. Um, What they are doing is to make their website more accessible. They've added some sonifications. And these sonifications are, they're a little more simple than some of the ones that, say, NASA is doing, which makes them way more accessible mentally to me, if you ask me, because this is really hard stuff. So in part one, we talked about what variables are uh, with Paul and Afra. And today, they're going to guide us through some examples and you'll get to hear a sonification. But I recommend go to the website because it's hard stuff. I have to listen to this stuff and read it multiple times before I get it, but it's super rewarding. So it's Sensing the Dynamic Universe, and the link will appear in the show notes. So uh, let's give a listen to part two of my conversation. What I'd love to do is to take a few examples of sonifications you've done, have um, have one of you explain in detail, and the website's very good at this, but to have one of you explain in detail what the phenomenon is, uh, maybe a bit about how it was observed, what the data points represent, and how how those were plotted with sound, and then to play the audio file. So, um, Afro, do you have some examples that you can you can uh, outline for us? Type 1A supernovae. These are very common. They're super well known. And it's when a white dwarf, it's a, which is a kind of star, it pull it's in a binary system. So there's another star near it, and it keeps pulling mass into itself. And that triggers a huge explosion. And this collapse because white dwarfs. They are typically very similar, chemically speaking. This collapse always happens at the same exact mass, which means they all these type 1A supernovae have the exact same brightness all the time. So astronomers call type 1A supernovae standard candles because the apparent brightness, what we see from Earth, is going to be different depending on how far away it is. The farther away something is, the dimmer it looks, the closer away, it, the closer it is the brighter it looks. But we know that the intrinsic brightness, how bright it is actually, 
will always be the same. So that way we can calculate the distance to different type 1a supernovae. And that means that things around a certain type 1a supernovae, we can figure out how far away it is. So a light curve of a type 1a supernovae, it will slowly seem to get brighter and brighter. And then there's the peak of the explosion. So that's the brightest it will get. And then it'll slowly get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And that's what the brightness of a supernovae looks like over time. And so we can play that in a video and you can hear it get to the point of explosion. And then finally you can hear the peak and then it'll dim. When we listen to it, what are the data points? Like how how is time passing? Right. So the x-axis is corresponding to the modified Julian day, which is a measurement of time in days. And this is spanning over the course of 450 days. And these observations were taken in 2011 all the way into 2012. And there were 343 observations of this supernova occurring. As as Alfred said, that the data was taken over a long time, about 450 days, and it we've shrunk the uh, sonified video down to um, uh, about 45 seconds. So 10 days is compressed into one second in this video as it plays across. Ah, thank you. That's helpful. Okay. Uh, so let's listen to that video. Paul, can you give us another sonification? Describe what the phenomenon is uh, and how the data was used and sonified. Sure. Um, there, you know, there's different, all different kinds of variables, and that's that's um, partly what motivated us to put together the sensing the dynamic universe projects. So there's so many different ways that a star or uh, another celestial object can vary. And uh, sometimes things actually do vary and sometimes they only appear to vary, oh. right? So the example that we just heard, the supernova <clears throat> is a star that actually did vary. It actually exploded and got much, much brighter and then slowly dimmer. Um, but there are things that appear to get dimmer and brighter when that's not what's really happening. So those are called extrinsic variables. Things that truly get um, brighter or dimmer are intrinsic variables, and things that only appear that way are called extrinsic variables. So the supernova is a great example of an intrinsic variable, and a great example of an extrinsic variable is a binary star. So what's a binary star? Lots of stars are born in pairs or sometimes even triples. Fully half of the stars in the universe 
uh, exist in binaries. They have a twin and the two stars orbit each other. Sometimes that orbit is tilted relative to us in such a way that it's, it's inclined at 90 degrees so that during the orbit of these two stars around each other, one star w- will temporarily block from our view part or all of the light from the other star Mm -hmm. so basically when we're looking at the system it's so far away that it looks like it's one star you cannot see the separation between the two because they they're thousands uh of light years away in many cases Mm -hmm. so uh you what you see is a star that looks like it's getting brighter and fainter Really what's happening is uh, it's an eclipsing binary system. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're seeing the light from both stars and then one star goes behind the other and you're seeing the light from the brighter star and then it comes around again and then you're seeing the light only from the fainter star. So this this is called an eclipsing binary and um, it... So it gets brighter and fainter. And when you measure those changes, you can use uh, a particular analysis technique um, just to find out how often it happens. In other words, what is the period of the orbit? Ah. Some stars rotate uh, orbit around each other very quickly, uh, as quickly as even a few hours in some cases. Um, But most... uh, take longer. And what we have here that I'm going to play is an example of an eclipsing binary where we have measured that orbital period and taken every measurement and put it in its proper place in the orbit. That's called phasing the light curve. So I'm going to play a phased light curve of an eclipsing binary. And uh, that gives us... um, a picture of how the system gets brighter and fainter because of the eclipsing. So can you break down the sounds and the time and what they mean? So the, the sounds represent actual measurements taken with uh, an actual telescope. And it's a measurement of the brightness of the binary system of, of the, uh, of the stars and uh, the brightness, <clears throat> every, I think people have an intuitive feeling for that, that, uh, that, that means the amount of energy that's coming from the star the, right. that reaches us. Right. And so we're plotting the amount of energy as it changes with time. So uh, the amount of energy is portrayed in these wacky astronomical units called magnitudes on the vertical y-axis. Mm-hmm. And across the horizontal x-axis, um, we're playing a version of time that we call the phase. And that uh, a phase of one means an, an entire orbit has been completed. A phase of two means that two entire orbits have been completed. So um, we measure the period, the orbital period of this star, and then uh, we play those brightness points um, along the x-axis in phase, which corresponds basically to time.
Now, these sonifications uh, can be found on the Sensing the Dynamic Universe website. So, Afra, I'm curious, what are your ambitions for the website? Where would you like it to grow? Where would you like it to go? What do you want it to accomplish? Right. So our goals for the website are for it to serve as an educational tool. Um, We specifically want to make the site as easy to access as possible for educators. So we're hoping that high school teachers, intro to astronomy, college professors can use this and use it in their classes as a way for their students to access the data quickly and easily. And we're also hoping for the general public, anyone who's curious or interested in astronomy from a citizen science perspective, to not only learn about these astrophysical phenomena, but see directly the data that the telescopes have observed and feel like really connected to the science itself. I just want to say again that I love the sonifications. The simplicity is really refreshing and clear. Um, the The link will be in the show notes. Can you just sort of verbally tell us the website? www.cfa, uh, which stands for Center for Astrophysics, .harvard.edu slash SDU. Awesome stuff. Really great as we uh, work our way uh, with Christine's. Those those interviews are just tremendous. When she gets people who know the stuff so well, Rum, incredible. Yeah, and the thing is, um, as Christine was kind of talking about in her introduction, it's fantastic where this accessibility is going. There, mm-hmm. there still seems to be some workaround and some, you know, making this possible for to be talked about with accessibility. But if there was enough. When we were growing up, oh, would any of us be in STEM right now? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. This is Christine Malik with Curious Minds, of course, and she joins us on the third Thursday of every month. Momentarily, folks, it's the weekly roundtable. Our guest this week is Jillian Gillis, AMI-TV reporter in Halifax, who will be with us. Stick around. Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually it oval. Just say yeah. it. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, well, I don't know. Well, I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. It is, ladies and gentlemen. I swear to you, oval. And we call it the round table. We get into this conversation. It's like calling a square round. Oh no, no, really? Yeah, but it has points. It's kind of got a corners. It's isn't it actually square? No, no, no. It's a round table. And that's what this conversation all is. The proverbial round table is what it's become over the last. Uh, what now? Three years almost, right? Isn't it more? Two and two, because uh, yeah, two Five. years and a half. No, no, I mean, since what? we've never been back in the studio. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, didn't we just celebrate an anniversary? Anyways, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, so since we haven't yeah, been, yeah, I, I would mm-hmm. say that. So more of the proverbial round table. So what happens, folks, on Thursday at this point? At the host around table, we have a little chat. It's an open conversation on a variety of subjects. No right or wrong answers, just some opinions, some conversation. We'd like to welcome in Jillian Gillis, of course, our uh, Atlantic reporter in Halifax. Jillian, how are you? What's going on out there? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. It's always a nice time talking to you guys. 
Well, let's see. We've got some interesting topics that I'm hoping you guys will weigh in, have your own thoughts, feelings about. Uh, and of course, as, as I just said, no wrong answers. So I'm going to jump into it. Um, we've got a few things we want to chat and catch up with you in a little bit about, but we'll save those for just a little while here on the show. One quarter of frontline employees um, that were surveyed at Canada's border agency say they have directly witnessed a colleague discriminate against a traveler in the previous two years. Take a listen. More than 900 border services officers and superintendents were surveyed in March 2020 as part of an internal Canada Border Services Agency evaluation. 71% of respondents who had witnessed discrimination say it was based on the traveler's race, and just over three-quarters cited their national or ethnic origin. Just over two in five said they did not report the discrimination they witnessed, some mentioning fear of reprisal or simply feeling uncomfortable. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. So I want to start first. Jillian, any particular part of that actually surprise you or as you hear that, you kind of just, "Mm -hmm, no, 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 not a surprise. You know, the sad truth is I'm not really surprised. Um, It's really unfortunate that this is still happening and, you know, (laughs) after 2020. See, where I, ladies, where I find the, the, I'm not going to, because I'm not surprised. The one thing that I'd like to see, uh, say that I, I guess so sad that it's confirmed that we still, I witnessed it, but I'm not going to report it. That that is still our attitude because to me that is the crux of how things stay the same as much as we try to pretend mm-hmm. they've changed, but they stay the same, Ramya. Yeah, it's um, just decades and generations and mentalities of all different people from around the world and what they've experienced, what they've uh, been exposed to in terms of generational trauma and all of that coming in. And, uh, you know, it, it just needs a lot of dissection. Why is it that our mentality still remains pretty rigid, um, even from the point of view of witnessing? Yep. You know, is there is there some kind of fear still? Fear of authority, fear of, you know, mm-hmm. the projection of um, not wanting to snitch, right? Like that kind of thing. Uh, from all different perspectives and ways that it ties in. I I am not surprised, like as you asked Jill, uh, I'm not surprised, but I am curious to keep exploring, like why is it that we continue to not um, make noise about certain things? What about excuses? Like, do we, the fear of of reprisal, of somebody finding out you went and ratted that I was joking around or I was, you know, kind of discriminated against that person or whatever. A lot of time people hide behind jokes. They may make their little ethnic jokes. They're, ha, 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 we're coworkers. We can joke that way. It's between us. And we're hearing so much of, no, don't don't allow that stuff. We hear a lot of talk about it. Mm-hmm. We're here, don't sit around when somebody's doing something racist like that. Say no, stop, get out of here. I don't want to hear it. Tell somebody who's in a position to say, hey, I don't want you saying those things. You're on the job. Act like you're a human being on a job. We can't tell you what to do at home, but here that's that's not acceptable. Jillian, I find a lot of time we have such interesting worries that keep us from either being proactive or making an excuse to ourselves that, ah, you know, that's just Bob or that's just the way that's his weird sense of humor. 
Yeah, for sure. I think we definitely need to shift away from worrying about what other people are going to think and, you know, try to support each other in in those kind of ways. Um, I think maybe there needs to be some kind of like restructuring with like reporting these sorts of things so it can be more anonymous and um, addressed correctly. I always wonder if sometimes we don't pursue the reporting thing because we obviously know it's going it's happening we don't want to as an organization or or in this case um at the board they don't want to have to then call their people in and say look you gotta it's almost like we just say yeah it's a given it you know but they're calling people in well we've already got a bad rep any day anyway we we're you know we we people say we randomly do this we randomly do that hold people up so what's it matter no one necessarily knows that's what's going on but we do know because your Mm -hmm. your employees are telling us this um nearly 30 percent of Canadian seniors currently live alone and experts say that sky high inflation is putting them in an increasingly risk of uh, social isolation. Please listen. Many older adults live on fixed pensions or government benefits that aren't keeping pace with the rate of inflation in 2022. Seniors who can't afford internet or a cell phone are also less likely to stay in touch with family and friends. Loneliness and social isolation in older adults has been linked to depression, increased number of falls and use of health services, and even premature death. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Run you through the pandemic. This sound like any other community you might want to bring up? Uh, yeah, exactly. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, you know, it really... It's sad, right? Because the first part of it, honestly, if you had stopped at 30% of seniors live alone, I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. You know, it's awesome that we can um, get people to feel uh, supported, uh, but still feel like they can lead independent lives, still have a quality of life at the, the age of retirement and, you know, be satisfied. But then you keep going and keep going and it just sounds awful. Um, we can't support uh, with the, they can't keep up. They're not even, you know, like no access to internet, no access to technology, uh, which we find to be vital for day-to-day life and um, the isolation and all these other things. So yeah, it, it kind of sucks because you, you can tell that the, if the potential were there, this would actually be great and we could celebrate and recognize the the, the fact that uh, so many people are able to live independently, um, seniors, people with disabilities, you know, all kinds of people from the communities. But then you say, but dot, 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 and this is why it's not great. Yeah. I mean, it's nice, the health part of it, Jillian, when you think about it, that, hey, man, we all know people are living longer, but then there will be, we're, we're surprised when someone says, yeah, but what's my quality of life? I'm alone. Mm-hmm. Now you're raising prices on food because we have a worldwide crisis. I'm unhappy. I'm depressed. Yeah, it's it's so wild how like separate these things are and, you know, like seniors, it's it's heartbreaking to hear that like they're being isolated and um like the price of Everything has gone up, as we know, um, and like just the price of internet alone and cable, just to have like access mm. to the outside world, um, 
you know, it makes me, it makes me worry for like my grandparents and stuff like that. Like, and not to mention like a lot of those uh, seniors, they still don't, you know, fully have access to technology or like the know-how to use the technology. So all these things are moving to, you know, so fast with new technology and we're kind of leaving our seniors in the dust. And we saw so many forced into doing more, learning more because of the pandemic. But now when we talk about food and, and again, I'll bring in, as I said, off the top, uh, remind you of any other community, the disability community, Mm. again, a lot of people unemployed uh, have never worked, have, have a lifestyle where they're, they're on the system and and that's fine um, to some degree, even though many of us want to work, which isn't fine when you want to work, and can't, and the options aren't there, um, as we see a lot of people in the country, uh, you know, arrive and we go through great efforts to get jobs with them. But our disabled community still has huge numbers of, of people disabled. Anyway, um, when mm-hmm. we talk about the food or, or, or cost of it, tomatoes or whatever it might be right now, uh, milk, uh, bread, all mm-hmm. the things that are, quote, the staples, and I think that reality that it'll never get cheaper no matter what what anyone says or how much availability Uh, i hate always bringing up the disability community too when we have these conversations because there are other groups that are in the same boat and i always jillian say i wish we could just find a way for people to recognize all of these marginalized groups that need that support or help together Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that's why, like, I think there's a lot of people coming out now talking about, like, universal benefits. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really... would benefit everyone. It would com- benefit the disability community, the seniors, like, anyone. Yep. You, can, you have a bottom line for everybody mm-hmm. who needs it. You're not um, making certain people feel like they need to, uh, like, step up for their own advocacy because... That's the the other part, right? You're always feeling like, oh, why are we the community who has to be uh, making a fuss about this? There's so many people who need the help. But even if you're mm-hmm. thinking about just just like totally different example, but, uh, you know, the priority seats on the buses, right? And mm-hmm. who needs that? Everybody needs that. Um, but you think that we have to make the disability advocacy, but it's actually so many people who benefit from just saying, hey, the, the front seats are for people who need it. I think, and I think pride is such a thing that we have to remember is part of that as well. Whether it's loneliness for you know seniors uh, or or finances for someone on a fixed income, you have your pride and and you want to make things level for everyone so that you're not singling people. Well, we have to help you out more than it's it's a case of we we have to put our hand out to help everyone and that's the way it should go uh i'm gonna toss this next one at you ladies before we get into what i kind of want to what we brought jillian on to talk a bit about american airlines has agreed to buy up to 20 supersonic gents jets and uh put down a non-refundable um uh non-refundable deposit on planes that are still years away from being available neither american or the manufacturer uh, would not provide any details pertaining the deposit that's available. Marcus Moore, this reporter, he has more. The aircraft is still in the prototype stage, and Boom is still searching for a company to make the engine. According to the Associated Press, Boom is talking with Rolls-Royce and others. The last time people could fly at supersonic speeds on a commercial flight? 2003, the year British Airways and Air France retired the Concorde. 
Wow. And Boom CEO uh, says that his company's plane will be different when it debuts in 2029 with tickets costing about $4,000 to $5,000 to fly <laughs> from New York to London in about three and a half hours. Jillian, is that a, that a flight you're going to be lining up for even if you had the money? Is it that important to get there that quick? <laughs> I don't know about all that. <laughs> yeah, especially in what uh, seven years, don't know where you'll be. You know how many. You know how much. How much your company will be. <laughs> how much <laughs> disposable money? Uh, Rum. How about you? No, I'm good. But if it was a different flight, well, you make your big like, AMI salary. So I know it's really not the money that's the problem. You know. Uh, anyways, it's not. <laughs> It's not that. It's just the time. I'm thinking, does this really make an actual difference? But, you know, soon we'll have competitors and then maybe the flight to Australia will be like half the time or a quarter of the time or something. Folks, just a note, thing will fly a little slower (laughs) than the Concords did. So just a little bit. Jillian, um, this is the last time we're going to have you on the roundtable as an AMI employee. Um, You are uh, going to be leaving by the end of the month here. Um, what's, What's in store for the future? Yeah, so my contract is coming to an end with AMI, and I am really excited. I'm not 100% sure what's uh, in store for the future, but I do plan to get back in the saddle and work some more on my podcast. I haven't had a lot of opportunity to do that uh, in the last year and a bit working with AMI. Um, I wanted to focus my time on that and uh, make sure I was doing you guys justice and uh yeah so i'm thinking about getting back into the podcasting and potentially uh applying to be on big brother canada (laughs) oh wow (laughs) that's awesome uh first though before we can carry on into anything else you want to plug the podcast so people can go and catch up Absolutely. So my podcast is called Self Love is Blind, and it is anywhere you find podcasts. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And it's just a talk show, sort of just like like us sitting here talking as friends, but we talk about... Um, you know, disability-related issues, mental health, um, LGBTQ plus um, things. And, and yeah, it's, it's a really fun time. I think everyone's got a unique journey and a story to tell. And I want to help facilitate those conversations. Well, we appreciate the time that you've come on our program, um, mm-hmm. especially telling us what's coming up on ATW, the pieces that you've had a chance to shoot. It's been really wonderful as somebody who didn't do this stuff, got the gig and shared so much to you know our audience as to what was coming up on ATW and your take of it. And, and Rummy, I'll pass it over to you. Uh, yeah, I know it's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, just the, the conversations we had, I know we've talked a lot on uh, mental health and just the awareness of different things that go on. And uh, this angle is, you know, of personal interest to me as well. So it's been really nice having you on the show, Jill. Thank you. It's been um, it's been a pleasure, honestly, and working with everyone at AMI. Um, I don't think the transition into this new to me role would have been as uh, uh, <laughs> successful, I guess, as uh, as it would have been if I didn't have all of you by my side. So I'm very thankful for for the time I've had with AMI. Well, we appreciate your time, the great stories, everything that you've shared with us. Uh, Good luck with the podcast, and uh, we'll talk with you down the road, and, and good luck ahead, Jillian. 
Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, um, feel free to follow me on uh, Instagram. I'm the Jill Gillis, and Self Love Is Blind is on podcast or on uh, Instagram as well. All right, Jillian Gillis, our current reporter in Halifax, joining us, covering off things in uh, Atlantic Canada, and uh, big thanks for always being available to join us on the roundtable. We'll step aside for a couple of moments. When we return, we'll see what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown. Welcome back to Kelly and Company, Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald. Remember, you can check out our podcast. Just simply subscribe using your favorite podcast platform. Enjoy the show in segment form or enjoy the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience where we toss on an audio vanity card. Also, original podcasts from AMI-audio this week include Sean of the Shed, AEBC's A Triple Vision was out on Tuesday, and Connecting Disability was out yesterday. Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther and My Life in Books debut new episodes this weekend, so check them out as well. Also, please note that last week we released the second episode of Tripping on Air out on YouTube and other platforms. It's called The Stress of Disability Insurance, and that, of course, Season 1, Episode 2, so you still have plenty of time and availability to grab Episode 1. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, hosts of the program. Rum, any particular segment from our show today, going back there, that you want to shout out? Yeah, well, talking to Josie and Frank from um, INUC and VLRC, Vision Loss Rehabilitation Canada, uh, was really fantastic because this new initiative to get um, more, you know, services out in rural areas for people um, living in those communities, uh, particularly Indigenous people, um, is just um, absolutely fantastic. We know with the IVAN and other such services, uh, just getting the medical assistance, getting the monitoring, getting the information out there to people um, who don't have regular access is uh, phenomenal. You know, it makes the world of a difference for people. Um, And with diabetic retinopathy, which is the specific focus of INUC, um, the technology is getting so much better. Um, So just that conversation was incredible. The initiative is awesome. If you want to learn more about it, check out the podcast. Very, very great. And just knowing you don't necessarily need that particular specialist that has to come in and and take that time, which people just don't have enough of, especially if we want to cover off so many eyes to look at. Paul Daniel joining us. He's one of the producers now with Dave Brown. Their show weekdays, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. in the morning right here on AMI. Uh, Paul, what do you have on tap for the Friday edition tomorrow? Hey, Kelly, on tomorrow's show, the Friday news panel convenes as journalist Michelle McQuig, Julia Gupta from The Pulse, join Dave Brown, to discuss some of the big issues of the week, including the controversy over the dismissal of Lisa Laflemme after 35 years at CTV News, including the last 11 years as anchor of the, pro- the national program. Mm-hmm. The panel will discuss the allegations of sexism and interference in the newsroom that have been made against CTV. The panel will also examine recent Statistics Canada numbers, which say the proportion of Canadians who speak predominantly French at home has decreased nearly in nearly all the provinces and territories, including Quebec. It also says that 4.6 million Canadians predominantly speak a language other than French or English at home. Mm-hmm. So people look upon Canada as a Canada as a grand cultural tapestry. Do these new numbers prove that point? And on a lighter note, entertainment critic Michael McNeely will review the comedy drama The Little Fish. 
Thanks, pal. Appreciate it. And uh, to answer that question, no, not a surprise to me, but was very no. interesting numbers for all of us to kind of, oh, really? And, um, you know, yeah. unfortunately not speaking our second language as as frequently or as um, prominent. Uh, an interesting thought and makes you, hmm, but I know we have Indeed. so much diversity. Thanks, pal. Take care, Kelly. Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. in the morning right here on AMI. Rum, you're back here tomorrow. Uh, have a wonderful show. Thank you. Have a good long weekend. Thank you very much. The Apple Watch, folks, could become a self-check tool for heart attack symptoms. We learn more with John Beeler of the App Show tomorrow. New Robert Half research shows 25% of Canadian workers are worried about losing their jobs if the economy worsens. We dive into this with Michael French, National Director at Robert Half, also on the show. Are you ready to pair your favorite food with an audiobook recommendation? Hmm. Ryan Huey highlights a quiz by Book Riot, which does just that. Bill Shackleton joins us for the Friday Buzz with Bill. Let's get the conversation recaps and comment on segments from the past week on Cut for Time. And producer Jeff Ryman brings us the latest lifestyle headlines. The show begins at 2 p.m. Eastern when we start opening the gateway to your weekend, folks. Take care, all. I'm waving at you. See so many people getting their kids ready to go back to school. And I've always said, come that first day after Labor Day, I kind of get anxiety as if I'm going back to school. It's kind of a funny time for me. There would even be times I would you know, try to book vacation time just so that I didn't have that same feel. I know that makes it sound like I hated school, and I was never a big fan of school. I never enjoyed it, but I love theater and <laughs> don't really love rehearsal. Um, but sometimes it can be fun just as school could. So then I often think when I was going to public school in my home community, because I thought maybe that made the difference when I went to school in London versus out to Brantford every Sunday night and returning on Fridays, that obviously in itself, you can imagine, wow, you're leaving your family like that, all the things that come with that. Did I get more bothered come late August, early September? I don't think it was any more. I think going to school just, oh man, the sticking with me through the school year and sometimes seeming worse than others to head back on that Sunday and dreading that trip. That was always there, but I'm going to stick with the summertime. I know I valued the time a lot. I didn't want to waste time through the summer. I wanted just to do the things I wanted to do. Even if that meant sitting in front of TV, I wasn't wasting my time. I was taking advantage of every day. I tried not to look forward to, oh, tomorrow afternoon, because that meant pushing the clock forward, speeding up the time and once that time was gone, you didn't get it back, and it got you closer to going to school. Why did I dread going to school? I love being at home. I love being with my family. I really enjoyed that, and being a person who, when I look back now, has spent so much time away from London, and not having that same feel others do about being in their own home and being in their community, other than people who have gone to some kind of residential school. It's really an odd thing because some people really embraced it and loved it. And those are the highlights of their life. Me, I have lots of highlights, but I always had that overwhelming, oh man, would I have traded it not to go? To be able to stay if the system allowed me to be properly educated in London? Sure, in a heartbeat. I enjoyed being home. 
and I understand others didn't. Others didn't have that luxury of really having that wonderful family environment that they liked. And I certainly learned a lot about that kind of thing, too, when I was away and tried to figure out, how come this person seems so happy being here, but not at home? So I always felt very lucky. And at this time of the summer, I started to get anxiety and think, oh, my goodness, and counted the days. But, of course, I made it through like everybody does. And I'm not sure I can answer, was it tougher going back to W. Ross or just going back to school overall, no matter where? Probably I was too young for it to really dawn on me before I went to W. Ross, became more aware of it when I was there. And then I was so grateful to be back in London to finish up my high school. So I don't think it bothered me the same, except it just made me nervous to go into a bit of the unknown and then to return to it and be in such a massive school situation. And those are just the typical things you get worried about. And, of course, I by then was in grade 11 and 12. Just some thoughts I wanted to share on our summer and going back to school. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.